We are in Journey Through Genesis. This is part 22, I think. I think that's where we are. We're in Genesis 24, part 2, and Genesis 25, part 1. I do know that. And let me say a prayer, and then we will review and introduce where we are tonight. Got some great stuff. So maybe we turn these lights up a little bit. And uh, I'm going to say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for a good God, a good, good Father. And, Father, we just pray that you would just speak to our hearts tonight. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. And God bless you. All right, so we are in verse number 61 of Genesis 24. A little review, though. We saw how that Eliezer which is possibly the servant, the elder servant that Abraham sent to get a wife for Isaac from amongst his kinfolks. We see where this Eliezer, if he is that servant indeed, his name means God is my help. He is a helper. And I mentioned last time how that this is a beautiful parallel, a picture of the father sending a helper to get a bride for his son, which is like the father sending the Holy Spirit, which in the Greek, the the comforter, Jesus said, don't worry, I'm sending a comforter. The comforter, it, it, it's from the Greek paraclete, meaning one called alongside to help. And so the helper is helping get together a bride for the son. So beautiful parallels here. And let's pick it up in verse number 61. Then Rebecca and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Bir Laharoi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. The King James says she lighted off the camel, which was always, we always joked and said, well, we know what she smoked. She smoked camels, right? She lighted off her camel. Probably a fat boy, no filter. But verse 65, for she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother, Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted comforted after his mother's death. Now, we looked at how... Eliezer had set these parameters, like I want whoever comes out, one of the ladies that comes out in the evening to get water to to offer me water, but offer to water my camels as well, which was a lot of work. I mentioned last week he wasn't looking for a good-looking woman. He was looking for a hard-working woman, and he found both in Rebecca. So she goes with him. We saw the, the send-off, the farewell, and Eliezer is taking Rebekah to meet her husband-to-be, Isaac. No doubt he's telling her all about him. 
the one for whom she has left everything. It's all about Isaac. Interestingly, while Eliezer is telling Rebekah about Isaac, Isaac heads out to meditate in the field in the evening. Everybody say meditate. The Hebrew for this word meditate means to muse, to speak, to chant, to take a religious walk, to mutter, to commune. So upon what was Isaac meditating? You know, we have New Age connotations and Eastern mysticism. That's what comes to our mind. You know, um, and holding your fingers a certain way, and namaste, and all this kind of stuff. But, but this, this is this is prior to all of that. What, what is this? What is it that he is meditating upon? I believe, and I think the case is clear, that Isaac was meditating on the word, on the plan. He was familiar with what God intended. He had heard about the seed of the woman. We've talked a lot about that in Genesis. He knew about the Redeemer who was to come. He even knew something about the death and resurrection of that Redeemer. He learned that on Mount Moriah when Abraham was offering him as a sacrifice. And the Lord said, no, don't do your son any harm. There's a ram caught back here in the thicket. I believe Isaac was meditating on that plan and those purposes of God. He was meditating on the plan of the God and the God of the plan. John said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's meditating on this God and his plan. And Isaac went to a solitary place to meditate out in the field to recall and recite the promises, the plan, to contemplate and consider what does it all mean? Where do I fit into this master plan? He was aware of those who had gone before and the roles that they had played. His father Abraham, for instance, Noah, Enoch, Seth, Adam, and he knew there would be those who would come later because it was said that the whole earth would be blessed through Abraham, Isaac, and that family. But where specifically did he fit in? What would be his role? Are you with me? Isaac knew he had already played a part in this saga. He was, after all, the son of promise, the son of sacrifice, In a sense, the son resurrected. He had already played some part in this plan, but what part would he play as the plan continued to unfold? I mean, Eleazar had gone to this far country to get a wife, a bride for him. Maybe he's praying, Lord, let her be pretty. Lord, don't let her be too old. Lord, don't let her be... Well, I don't I don't I better be careful what I'm saying here but just yeah maybe he was praying about that Now let me say right here 
you are just as much a part of God's unfolding plan today as Isaac was 4,000 years ago. Isaac had his part to play then, but you have your part to play now. Just because he was important enough to be included in the Scripture, the lineage of Jesus Christ, all on that side of the cross, here we are on this side approaching fast the end times, right? The end time, the end times. And we have a role to play also. Now, the Bible's already been put together. We're not going to be put in the Bible, per se. But the thing is, Isaac was meditating about those who had gone before him, about his place, and about what was going on in the future, which would include a church called Life Point in Prairieville. So he was looking forward, looking towards the things that God would do, but we look back towards him. We have this in common. We look at the cross. He was looking forward to it. We look back to it. We look all the way back to Isaac. He was looking to the cross and beyond. All the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of what's going on right now. That's something that we have in common with Isaac. We, we meditate back. He was meditating forward. Now, here's, here's something else. For believers, for people of faith, people of the word, people of the book, people of the plan, for us, prayer, meditation is like oxygen. It is absolutely essential. It is vital to people of faith. And just like Isaac, we have to set aside time, one of our most valuable commodities. Cash is not our most valuable commodity. Stocks and bonds are not our most valuable commodities. Real estate's not our most valuable commodity. Bitcoin is not our most valuable commodity. What is it? Time. My dad always taught me time is money, son. Time. We have to set aside time to meditate, to pause and reflect, to consider and contemplate, to recite, to pray. I don't know if you realize this, but at Life Point, every Sunday, we have pre-service prayer. It's just a small space, but it is pre-service prayer. And I encourage everybody to be here. It ought to be packed out. That ought to be standing room only. Time set aside, just praying, seeking the face of God. We also have First Monday prayer and communion. And in January, we're going to have focused prayer and fasting. We'll fast food and social media, negative speaking and, and sweets. I always make fun of fasting everything but food. It's a fad to fast everything but food because in the Bible, fasting was fasting food. And, and I can fast a lot of things, but I'm going to tell you something. Fasting food, I do not like fasting food. And you know why? Because I love food. I love, oh, I love food. Yeah, I, I had a pizza tonight. I called Valerie. I said, Valerie, what are we having for supper? Yeah, and Valerie's like, oh, man, I've been working like I don't know. And I said, well, I'm just going to stay at the church. And, and I was going to try to waiter something in, and my waiter app got all janky, and, and, but my Domino's app worked. <laughs> 
And I'm like, well, here we go. It's pizza night for DAs. So ordered a pizza, ate a bunch of it, and told Aaron, take this away from me now or I will eat all of it. Why? Because I love food. You love food, too. Don't look at me like that. But in January, we're going to fast food amongst other things. We'll fast a lot of things. Uh, you know, four, four weeks we'll be fasting different things. But we're going to fast food. I, I did a, a Google search for, quote, Google books on prayer, unquote. Google books on prayer. You know, you can, they scan these books. Well, out of uh, that search, I got 6,690,000 results. Books on prayer, Google books on prayer. But Isaac never read one of them. Isaac never went to a prayer seminar at his local synagogue. Yet, he went into the field in the evening to meditate. He had learned the importance of refocusing, of the restorative and renewing power of consistent meditation and prayer. And check this out. While he was meditating, the love of his life walked into his world. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that if you come to First Monday Prayer and you're single, that the love of your life is necessarily going to walk through those doors. I'm not saying it can't happen. I mean, it happened to old Isaac out there in the field. Maybe you should claim that. I don't know. We might could pack this house out if we got a doctrine going. You come to first, it's the Isaac doctrine. You come to first Monday prayer, God's going to send the love of your life walking right in that door. We set a chapel up. Oh, my goodness, I, I just see something happening right there. But while he was praying, here's what I could say. Maybe it was his consistent prayer life that facilitated the Holy Spirit and God's holy angels to guide Eliezer on his extraordinary journey to find and fetch Rebekah. To the point that while Eliezer was praying, Rebekah walked up. And while Isaac was praying, Rebekah walked up. Remember that. Remember from last time. We saw where Eliezer is out there by the well. He's like, Lord, I don't want to let my master down. If you'll just help me. Uh, the girl that offers you know, to, to give me something to drink and to all these ten camels. It's going to take hours to, feed, to, to, to quench their thirst. That girl, Lord, if you'll send her. And she walked up before he even finished praying. Could it be that it was Isaac's consistent prayer life that caused, maybe put that in Eliezer and kind of facilitated that entire opportunity from taking place or caused it to take place? What opportunities are we missing out on because we don't take time to pray? Listen to this. Ace Collins in his book, Stories Behind the Hymns That Inspire America, quotes an historian from, of all places, I couldn't believe this when I read it. Zwali 
Louisiana, home of Zwali Tamales, right? Uh, but this particular historian that Ace Collins quotes, his name is James Q. Salter. And he brings to us this amazing story. Listen to it. 150 years ago, two businessmen stood on a street corner in Port Hope, Ontario, Canada. As a little man carrying a saw walked by, one of the businessmen said, Now, there is a man who is happy with his lot in life. I wish I could know his joy. Perhaps I can get him to cut my winter supply of wood. The other businessman said, I know that man. He would not cut your firewood. He only cuts wood for the financially destitute and for those who are physically handicapped and cannot cut their own firewood. Now, they're in Canada. That's a lot of, a lot of cold. They need a lot of wood for the fire. That young woodcutter was named Joseph Scriven son of a captain in the British Royal Marines. Joseph was born in Ireland in 1819. After receiving his university degree from Trinity College in London, he quickly established himself as a teacher, fell in love, made plans to settle in his hometown, then tragedy struck. The day before his scheduled wedding, his fiancée drowned. Overcome with grief, Scriven left Ireland to start a new life in Canada. He established a home in Rice Lake where he met and fell in love with Eliza Rice. Just weeks before she was to become his bride, she grew sick, and in a matter of weeks, Eliza died. A shattered scriven turned to the only thing that had anchored him during his life, his faith. Through prayer and Bible study, he found not just solace but a mission. The 25-year-old scriven sold all his earthly possessions, and vowed to give his life to the physically handicapped, financially destitute. Ten years later, Scriven received word that his mother had become very ill. He did not have the funds to go help care for her. He was heart sick, and he felt a need to reach out to her, and he wrote the story of his life in that season in a series of verses. Several of his friends carried a copy of his poem to a music publisher. In a couple of years, it had been coupled to a tune and published. Two decades later, the great American evangelist Dwight L. Moody in Chicago came across the song, believed it to be the most touching modern hymn that he had ever heard. And it was Moody who gave the song this national platform and made many think that it was written in America. Joseph Scriven, however, had written it, but he died in 1886, and he never lived long enough to see his song and his poem carried to the four corners of the earth. Listen to this. You'll know it. The words of his song say this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let me give you a few more of these lines. Is that all right? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble everywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. 
can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He goes on and on and on. But the idea is this. Isaac was a prayer. And he got this, I believe, honest. He got it from his father, Abraham. Abraham was a prayer as well. He took his needs, he took his questions, he took his fears, he took his tears, and with a heart of faith in the word, he prayed. He brought it to the Lord. Is that incredible or what? And then whatever you're facing, don't stop praying. Rather, kick up your prayer life a notch or two when the tough times come. Lord, I'm here, and I believe you with all my heart, but I am upset. I've got some troubles, Lord. You go through those psalms. Some of them are so melancholy. It's complaints. It's pouring out the heart, and I get it. I don't want to go to God and just gripe, gripe, gripe. I want to stand in faith as well, but I'm going to tell you something. God's bigger than the temporary distractions that you have and the setbacks that you have. You can unload on him and let him put back into you and build you up. You can let him be your counselor, right? Your mighty, uh, your great counselor. You can let him listen to you. You can unload on him. He can handle it, all right? And Isaac unloaded on the Lord, I believe. Shared his every care and concern. Questioned God, just like his father, we saw that. He lived in the real world, but he was trying to walk in faith. I also find this interesting. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? You awake? Woo. When Isaac saw Rebecca get down from the camel, he started walking towards her. When Isaac started walking towards her, I see it kind of like a silhouette, you know, with the sun setting, and it's kind of hazy and blurry, and a silhouette of Isaac walking towards her. And she asked Eleazar, who is this walking toward me? Eleazar said, this is Isaac. This is your bridegroom, Isaac, my master. And when she knew she was in the presence of her bridegroom, it said that she covered herself with a veil. What a little detail thrown into this story. She covered herself with a veil. This was significant in her culture. It spoke of, here's an old word for you propriety, getting things proper. It spoke of modesty. It spoke of a flow of authority, submission to authority, her finding her place in God's plan. This is how Rebecca wanted to meet her bridegroom. Now, I think the idea carries over to us today. That idea of a veil is clearly mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11. It's alluded to in other scriptures, such as Exodus 25, with the cherubim on the mercy seat. 
and their wings are outstretched, covering part of their faces, and they're not looking at each other, but they're looking down towards the mercy seat. And then also in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah, you know, his friend Uzziah died, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and there's these six-winged creatures flying around, these seraphim, and and they they covered their feet, they covered their faces with their wings, and they flew with the other wings. I don't understand all of that, but I do see this idea of a veiling or a covering with these seraphim and cherubim, these angelic-type creatures. These kinds of qualities, this covering, this veiling, it's it, it reveals submission to godly authority. And if there's one thing I'm sure of in Scripture, it's this. Angels are very sensitive to submission and rebellion when it comes to godly authority. Because before Adam and Eve ever got on the scene, there was a rebellion in the heavenlies. Lucifer was one of three archangels, one of the top dogs. The other two were Gabriel and Michael. Lucifer was one of three archangels, and Lucifer rebelled. I'll make my throne higher than God's. A third of the angels went with him. You know the story. And when Adam and Eve were placed in Eden, there was already a force of rebellious angels on this planet. That's why the Lord said, subdue this planet. Have authority over this planet. You're my vice regent. I empower you. And, and, and you had this idea of glory. Even then there was covering. They weren't naked per se. They were covered in the glory of God. Very powerful, very poignant. And so angels understand. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. When Lucifer lifted himself up, God cast him down. And so this idea of submission to godly authority, angels are keenly aware of that. They understand when they're in the presence of propriety or modesty or a flow of authority or submission or rebellion against it. So Rebecca veils herself, so she's very modest. Now, to be fair, when she puts the veil on, she's covering up, remember this, a third of a pound golden nose ring that Isaac had given her, right? <laughs> and uh, like half a pound of golden bracelets. I'm just saying. So, you know, she was modest, but not too modest. Are you with me? I got real quiet. I'm just saying. I just, you have to follow the text where the text takes you, right? We're just following it. Now, interestingly, when the Bible says Isaac went out to meditate in the field, listen to this. This is the first mention of Isaac personally doing something, a specific mention of him in activity since he was left on top of Mount Moriah. We see nothing of Isaac from the time of his rescue from death, which some would see as symbolic of resurrection, 
to the time he was united with his bride. Again, significance. In all this, we see the coming together of Isaac and Rebekah as a remarkable picture of the coming together of Jesus and his people. Some parallels. A father desired a bride for his son. A son was accounted as dead and raised from the dead. A nameless servant was sent forth to get a bride for the son. The servant's name, Eleazar, meaning helper. The lovely bride was divinely met, chosen, called, then lavished with gifts, including a giant nose ring. She was entrusted to the care of the servant until she met her bridegroom. David Guzik points out the way Isaac and Rebekah came to each other is also instructive. They didn't date in the modern sense of dating. And the modern sense of dating is even different now than when we dated. It's changed in so many ways. But they served and sought God. Isaac was out meditating in the field, and God brought them together. They obviously were more concerned with the will of God than with modern notions of romantic love, which so often is temporary in our society. Now, he loved her. Isaac loved his bride. And I'm going to tell you something, y'all. Jesus loves his church. He loves us with an everlasting, undying love. Now, some parallels, some more parallels here. Both Rebecca and the church, listen to this, were chosen for marriage before they knew it, were necessary for the accomplishment of God's eternal purpose. You can see this in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, John 17. Were destined to share in the glory of the Son, learned of the Son through His representative, must leave all the joy to be with the Son, were loved and cared for by the Son. Both Isaac and Jesus were promised before their coming finally appeared at the appointed time, Galatians 4, were conceived and born miraculously, son of promise, were given a special name before birth, were offered up in sacrifice by the Father, were brought back from the dead, were head of a great company to bless all people, prepared a place for their bride, had a ministry of prayer until united with the bride. Isn't that cool? That's deep stuff, y'all. That's wonderful stuff. So now we have come to the end of chapter 24. Let us now proceed into chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. And y'all, this is crazy wild right here. This is the guy. Okay, let me just set it up. This is the guy who wanted to have Isaac for 24 years. And then Sarah could not have Isaac. And then Abraham could not have Isaac. His body being as good as dead, Romans chapter 4, could not have Isaac. And then the Lord worked a miracle. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. Abraham again, now Sarah's gone. Abraham again took a wife. Her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Somebody received their miracle. Now in verses 3 and 4, grandsons come along to Abraham and Keturah. But look at this, verses 5 and 6. 
And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. One word. Wow. Wow. And I probably should stop right there. Verses 7 through 11. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Bir Lahoromi, uh, Roe. Notice, when Abraham died, his greatest mistake and his greatest success, Ishmael and Isaac came together and honored him. It's fascinating to me. And they buried him at this place that he had purchased. We looked at that. So let's go ahead, verses 12 through 18. I'm not going to read that. It's just a bunch of names, and it's kind of giving the genealogy of Ishmael. But I do find this interesting. Just as there were 12 tribes of Israel, there were 12 tribes of Ishmael. The 12 princes, 12 tribes of Ishmael fascinating. Verses 19 through 21. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam Aaron, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Again, this fascinates me. Isaac, the son of promise, just could not himself have kids. Again, quoting Guzik, even the son of promise did not come into the promise easily. It came through waiting. It came through prayer. Let me just say this. Just because you get saved, it doesn't mean that everything just magically works out in your life. Just because God brought you through some storms doesn't mean you're never going to face another storm. How many of you found that to be true? Wayne, right? You, you think, man, I, I got it made in the shade. You know, I've had those moments. I, I, you know, I, I've, I've just had those. I've had quite a few of those moments. I'm like, well, now I finally crossed the precipice. I finally got across the finish line. I've got sufficient revelation now that I'll never have to face a storm again. And I'd just be all riding high and mighty for, you know, 17 hours. And then, bam! Then I'm like, Lord, I don't know what I believe anymore, you know. Like, I thought I, I'm, I'm uncertain. Oh, ah, you know, just that kind of thing. You, you never get past the struggle, right? One day we will. One day we'll know as we're known, but we're not there yet. And so here is Isaac, man. You would think after all that he's been through, 
with such a rich heritage of faith. Abraham is his father. But this boy still had to earn his keep. And I don't mean earn his salvation. But he had to make his own way. He had to get this for himself. He could not live on Abraham's faith. He had to live in his own faith. On his own faith. And you can't live on mine. I can't live on yours. You can't live on your spouse's. You can't live on your mom or your dad's. you got to have it for yourself. The, the just shall live by his faith. You live by faith and not by sight. You have to walk that walk, and nobody can walk it for you. Now, here's what's fascinating. His prayers for his wife were powerful. 1 Corinthians 7 says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Here again, you have this idea of authority, submission, lining up, but this idea of a husband praying over a wife or a wife praying over a husband. We can trust that the prayers of a husband for his wife have special power. And the same for prayers of a wife for her husband. Even so, it was some 20 years later before they had kids. So as awesome and powerful as that is, it was still 20 years of waiting. You know, you the way it's presented, it's it because it's just cutting to the chase, right? These these stories, it, it's just like, and she was she cried out, uh, uh, Isaac cried out, said, "Lord, help my wife, she's barren," and and it just seems like, and she got pregnant, and they had kids, and it, there you go. But it's twenty years, so like, Lord, I'm fifty five now, you know, I'm. 57 now, 58, 59, 60, and then here she comes. Guess what, Isaac? We're pregnant. We're going to have a kid. But it just wasn't one kid. It was two. And this is interesting, too. They only had two. They didn't have, you know, he didn't want like father, like son. Nope, wasn't that way. They only had two. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Notice this idea of praying constantly. She's got a question. She goes and inquires of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, what God said is simple. Rebecca was going to give birth to twins, and they would father nations, and one would be greater than the other, and the younger would be greater than the older. It's interesting I love to dig around in some of the Jewish traditions and rabbinic legends, basically. And some say that Jacob and Esau tried to kill each other in the womb. Some say that anytime Rebekah walked near an idol's altar, Esau got excited and started kicking. And anytime she went near a place where the Lord was worshipped, Jacob got excited and started kicking. 
verses 24 through 26. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. And I, that just blows my mind, too. You know, he's, he's born, he's red, he's hairy. And they said, well, let's just call him Harry. I mean, couldn't you get more creative than that, right? I mean, let's call him Star. Look at the stars, Star. Instead, they're like, wow, Harry. <laughs> Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So they're twins, right? So his name was called Jacob, which means heel grabber. Again, couldn't you get more creative? Look, he's got a hold of his heel. What a beautiful name, heel grabber. Now, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So, that idea, though, of a heel grabber, it meant something in the day. It, it had this idea of trickster, con man, scoundrel, rascal, backslapper. I would say politician, but I know some good politicians, so I won't say that. But it was not a compliment. So, again... Not only did they name him the obvious, but they named him a derogatory name. But, you know, I guess whatever, it was like calling him Scooter or something. I don't know, you know, like let's just call him Scooter. Uh, so anyhow, they, they named him Jacob. Now, God chose to go against the accepted patterns in this story where he says the younger would serve uh, where where the, the older would serve the younger. And and that is very significant. We're going to see this play out in quite a few stories in the remaining parts of the Bible. The, the elder serving the younger. We're going to see that in Joseph, another type of Christ, where everybody bows to Joseph, and he's the youngest at the time. And nobody can understand that. You've got to be kidding me. We see that even in the New Testament with the, the old man is subject to the new man that I've become in Christ. The elder is subject to the younger. So we're going to see this again and again. And this is going to open up a can of worms because, and I'm going to close with this, and I'll deal more with it in our next session, but it's 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 the idea that, Romans chapter 9 sheds light on this story, and it just says, you know, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And that's the way I've chosen to do it, God says. And if you don't like it, I don't care. I'm the sovereign God. I have this problem. I think I'm God. I can do whatever I want to do. And who are you, little man? To question me. And, and so it, it, it's, it's really a, a fascinating, and it's created theological wars through the years. But I want to I spend a little time on it.
But I love this little story. A woman once asked Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. And that's a great thought. Because as we see, Jacob's name fits in perfectly. He's a dirty, rotten scoundrel. He's a liar. He's a cheat. More so than his father. More so than his grandfather. He's a liar, a cheat. He's a con man extraordinaire. And yet God says, I love that guy. I want to look at that next time. Why would God love it? Let me give you a preview. Here's why. Because Jacob valued the covenant. I'm going to tell you something. You can have a lot of things wrong in your life, but if you value that word and you value this relationship, you can mess up time and time and time again, but those values that you hold will bring you to your knees and you'll say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've been a fool once again. And God loves people that humble themselves. He draws near to the broken and contrite. Those who humble themselves before the Lord and say, I made a fool of myself again. I made a fool of myself again. I made a fool of myself again. I'm, remember when Jesus said that there's two guys praying in the synagogue. One's like, I thank God I never mess up. And the other one says, I'm so sorry I mess up all the time. And Jesus is presenting this. He said, who do you think the Father listens to? I'll tell you who it is. God listens to the guy and says, I'm sorry, I mess up all the time. And he's beating his chest saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. There's a valuing of the covenant that I try to impart, I try to present, I try to get, I try to somehow make people understand. If you'll value this relationship that we have with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and if you'll always come back, His arms will always be open wide. Aren't you glad for that? You can mess up so bad, but His arms will always be open wide, and He'll say, welcome home. i got a place for you. Why don't you stand with me right now? We even do it. We'll look at people and we'll say, man, they messed up so bad. I can't even imagine why. Why would they even come to church? Where else could you go? We used to sing the song, where could I go? Oh, where could I go? There's people in this room tonight, if you knew their story, you'd be slapping yourself on the forehead saying, oh, my Lord. But don't judge too quickly. Because if your skeletons and your closet got out to all of us, we'd be doing the same thing. Oh, my goodness, right? We tend to say, well, I've had some issues, you know, but my Lord, you're a train wreck. You know, until our story comes out and people look at us and say, well, don't you think you're a train wreck? Maybe. Yeah, probably. But we serve a good, good Father, don't we? Can you lift your hands to Him right now? Thank you, Jesus.